This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Brinefield Services Company, Zolandez. Check them out at zolandez.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z dot com. Hi, it's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. Today is episode 134. My guests are from Rio Tinto. Marnie Finlayson is the Managing Director of Battery Materials. Grant Donald is the General Manager of Strategic Marketing for Minerals. Rio Tinto's been in the press a lot with respect to lithium over the past couple of years. They announced that they were going to produce lithium from tailings in California. We'll get into that. They, of course, have had the Yadar project in Serbia, which has recently run into some difficulties, and we'll talk about that. And their most recent announcement was that they were acquiring the Rincon lithium brine project in Argentina. I consider Rio Tinto's entry into the lithium world to be a seminal event for the industry. Lithium has been a small niche business for decades. Even the major lithium players are small companies in the greater scheme of things. Bringing in a global mining giant like Rio Tinto into this industry is only going to help get lithium where it needs to be to power the energy transition. Unlike many podcast episodes where I am having a conversation with people I've known in some cases for decades, this episode's a little unusual. I had never spoken to either Marnie or Grant before we recorded this. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Hope it is the first of many over the coming years as Rio Tinto's battery materials and lithium strategies unfold. Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to Erica in Rio's Singapore office, who I have met, and she was good enough to put me into contact with Marty and Grant. Without further ado, my discussion with Rio Tinto. Marnie and Grant, welcome to the Global Lithium Podcast. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. I'd like to start off with your backstory. Since there are two of you today, I will say ladies first. How did you get to where you are? Start from as far back as you want to go. Wow. Well, thank you, Joe. Well, I'll go back to actually where I was born and raised. So I was actually raised in the outback of Western Australia. Um, on the edge of a desert, uh, I grew up on a sheep station uh, that was half a million acres. So it's so quite a large sheep station in the northern goldfields. Uh, but there was a lot of mining around um, as I was growing up. So a lot of gold and, and nickel um, exploring and also producing in that region. So I grew up uh, working uh, hard on the land um, with my parents. Uh, so I've got an older and a younger brother. Um, so very early on, uh, I was instilled with a pretty, with a solid work ethic and, and really the ethos that you get out what you put in. I did my early years of schooling on radio and correspondence. So it was two-way radio, which is quite an experience. Uh, and then at 11 years old, went off to boarding school um, in the capital city, Perth, which is where I'm based today. And then after um, seven years at boarding school, I went, then went back to Kalgoorlie and studied at the West Australian School of Mines, uh, which is a part of Curtin University. Uh, I studied uh, minerals engineering and extractive metallurgy there, so I was there for four years. Uh, but I did take the time whilst I was studying to start working a lot in industry. So every vacation I had, um, I went out to work. And one of the opportunities I had in those very early years was to spend three months working at Greenbushes. 
Um, my mother is a Laylaw uh, and uh, the, the Laylaw brothers, so Chris and Peter. Um, I've and, met them. So they're my uncles. Um, so, yeah, I had the opportunity to go and work at Greenbushes for three months, which was fantastic. And, and, and across a, lot, a number of different commodities as well. But then when I graduated, I uh, went into uh, what was then North, uh, worked for Robe River, so in Iron Ore. And then across the course of the next 10 years, then shifted between iron ore base metals. So I worked for base metals junior, uh, went into coal. So did two stints um, on the east coast of Australia, working on coal processing. Uh, and then, um, then with Argyle Diamond, so Rio Tinto asset in the north of Western Australia. All of these um, in operational leadership roles are usually starting in technical roles, but then pretty quickly transitioning into to leadership roles. And then came back to Rio Tinto um, in 2008 um, into the iron ore business. I spent seven years uh, living and working in the Pilbara, um, which was fantastic. Had my family there. My two children were both, uh, both Pilbara children, so I grew up there. Then came back down to Perth um, to run the Dampier Salt business as an operational GM uh, in, in about 2015. Uh, and then from there was offered a fantastic opportunity that was life-changing both for me and for my family um, to go and live and work in Serbia and work on the Yadar project. And that's where my passion for, for battery materials and, and this value chain really started. Uh, it was a fantastic deposit in Serbia, uh, a lot of technical challenges that we worked through, um, but I really got a taste, particularly coming out of COVID, for, for the importance of this deposit for that region and really getting a first-hand view of how quickly uh, the drive and the green agenda came out coming out of COVID um, and the importance of, of lithium and battery materials for the energy transition. So I'm very passionate about it. Um, and then coming out of that role in Serbia, I moved back to Perth mid last year uh, and in sort of towards the end of last year, picked up the role that I'm in now, which is the Managing Director for Battery Materials for Rio Tinto. The whole Western Australia mining community is quite interesting to me. When I had Ken Brinsden on, he talked about he knew Chris Reed's family from they were old miners and told me the story about Herbert Hoover working in, yes. in that area. And I, I guess I've only, and I never pronounce it right. It was like Kalgoorlie, uh, something. Kalgoorlie, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I seen the super pit and, and all that. So it's, but it's, it's just interesting how, there's so many connections and it's a small world. And how it shifts the generation. So, yeah, Chris Reed's father and my father are good friends. So, yeah, I, I sort of knew Chris growing up as well. So there are definitely connections that come through from Goldfields days and all how the generations sort of work through um, the industry and use those connections. So it's definitely um, a small industry in Western Australia and everyone seems to know each other um, through, through the years. All right, Grant, let's bring you into the discussion. Give us a little of color on your life. Yeah, probably uh, not quite as uh, colorful as, as Marnie's. But uh, look, I started as a corporate lawyer. Um, so that was a, a very good opportunity for me to learn uh, and, and kind of uh, grow into uh, advising uh, pretty senior people in companies from quite a, a, an early stage in my career. But looking ahead at my partners at the firm I just didn't see myself long term being a lawyer and started to look at other opportunities to, to kind of transition to something that was more uh, more connected to actually doing something tangible so uh, I went and did an MBA and then I joined uh, Rio after that immediately after my MBA simply because I was really looking for something where you know uh, it made a big difference you know you produced a physical thing and, and it made a difference to the to the way that we live and uh, you know Rio's got this uh, tagline that, that pioneering progress you know that we make materials essential to, to to human progress and and that really is the kind of thing even though we didn't have that slogan at the time I joined uh, really resonates with me in terms of the tangibility of, of mining and uh, and look I, I did I've been there uh, 10 years been at Rio and, and I've done various different roles across finance and commercial mainly and and look, moved to Singapore uh, five and a half years ago to, to start that commercial journey we set, set up our commercial uh, group in in um, about 2017 was the start of it, bringing together all of our sales and marketing in one function, and uh, and look, it's been uh, very interesting to be part of that journey from from the beginning. And and my current role uh, is strategic marketing for a minerals portfolio, so that looks after a range of commodities like borates, titanium, metallic powders, uh, and at the time a small lithium project that we were working on called Yadar. Um, and it started out probably about 25% of my time. Uh, and I'd say now it's 
probably more like 75% of my time that I'm spending on batch materials. So that probably gives you an idea for the amount of work that we're doing in the space and, and the importance with which we're, we're, we're kind of looking at it as, a, as an opportunity. And, and look, for me personally, I think it really gives me a purpose, right? I think it's a really exciting opportunity to be part of, well, play a small role in part of the energy transition. And I think really important companies like Rio Tinto who, who have the potential to make significant contributions play their role. And uh, look, I'm very passionate as well about the energy transition and, and you know, the, the opportunity that that brings uh, to us uh, as a company um, and also to, to the world, right, to, to really um, deal with some of the issues that we've got and we face in, in climate change and, and opportunities that exist to, to decarbonize. Well, before we get into the real questions, I have one non-important question, but it's not trivial either. That accent does not sound like you were born in Western Australia. Indeed, um, I was born in, in, in the highlands of Scotland. In a place I thought Inverness. so. Yeah, I've been there through the whiskey trail and different parts of uh, Scotland. So yeah, I, I, was, I was pretty sure after you'd said five words that you weren't a, a Western Australian. <laughs> anyway, people were excited that Rio is now fully committed to going into battery materials and lithium in particular. And when we look at a company like Rio, I think your sales are about 20 times larger as a company than the biggest lithium company. If you compare yourselves to Albemarle or an SQM, there really is no comparison size-wise. And I think that that's important for the kind of scale we're going to need to get to, to get supply and demand to where it needs to go. And we'll get into that a little later. But Marty, as the MD of the battery materials business, could you tell me a little bit about what the vision is in Rio for battery materials and and what that includes? You also are into other things that may not be under your purview that are related to EVs. So you guys have a pretty broad base. Yeah, thanks, Joe. And and to your earlier comment, no one's more excited that Rio Tinto is going into this space than we are. Um, it's a, it's definitely something, and you heard from Grant, that, that we're excited about as well. So I might just step back and start with where Rio Tinto stands just in the energy transition We absolutely believe that as a mining and resources company, we play a critical role in in supporting the energy transition. We believe in climate change and we believe that it's only through partnering and working together that we're going to achieve the really the strong goals that are required in order to combat climate change. And so we believe that we do it in three ways. The first way we do it is is reducing, um, uh, is through the way that we operate. Um, So that's about reducing the emissions on our existing operations. Uh, And as you said in the intro, we we are a large organisation and we we have operations globally. And our ambition and our commitment that we made in our climate change and sustainability report um, is to halve our emissions by 2030. uh, And we're looking to invest $7.5 billion um, in the achievement of that target and to be net zero by 2050. So a big ambition for for a big producer. The second way that we believe that we play a part is through the materials that we produce. Uh, And as you alluded to, um, that's not just about battery materials. We also are a big producer of copper and aluminium, which are both also very important for this sector. Uh, So the materials that we produce, and that's where the, the battery materials strategy has come to, and I'll come back to that shortly. Uh, The third area that we believe that we play a part is through um, partnering. As as I said, the only way to achieve these ambitious targets is to do it together. Um, So we do partner in a number of different technology aspects in order to um, come up with technological advancements in order to combat um, climate change. And there's a number of different examples where we've done that. So with that uh, ambition and and that that, um, updated uh, report happened last year, in the middle of of 2021, uh, Jakob, who's our CEO, who um, is is very committed to um, electric vehicles, he's actually been an EV driver for a long time, Um, he asked me to pull together a strategy for battery materials for Rio Tinto. Um, so we did that. Uh, we, that was presented to the board in quarter three last year uh, and was endorsed. Uh, and this, this strategy uh, really outlines um, the question that you asked is, is, what is our ambition in this space? Um, so with that strategy, there's the key part is, is for us to build a, a leading battery materials portfolio by 2030. And the key part here, and it's interesting, the comment you made uh, earlier around sort of boron lithium is 
we are a big producer um, globally in iron ore and copper, but all of those, those commodities and our, our footprint in those started small. So this is actually about building a portfolio over time and, and doing that with really dedicated capital discipline. So the things that we're looking to do is firstly to, to grow the business. Uh, and as I said, that's about um, uh, is, is really understanding how we can apply uh, value through existing and potential future assets. We are very strong and really understand uh, all bodies uh, and so application of our all body knowledge, particularly in sort of traditional um, mining um, projects. We also uh, have got very strong skills and capability in refining uh, and because the refining and hydrometallurgical skills exist across a number of the different commodities that we work with now. Uh, and through that, we have actually set up some dedicated research and development networks that, that support this ambition. So grow the business is the first pillar. Um, the second part of our pillar is to build partnerships. Uh, and this is around building partnerships in the communities and in the areas where we operate. Uh, and also to become through partnerships in technology and along the value chain. And you would have noticed uh, last year that we, uh, we were a cornerstone investor in a, in a battery startup in Slovakia called Innovat Auto. So it's those types of partnerships and, and connection to technology that we believe will be critical for, for growing in this space. Uh, and finally, and we touched on this earlier, um, it's really about also being a leader in the green economy. We believe that through the way we produce uh, our battery materials um, is, is critical for, for the future. Um, and so with our, our boron lithium project uh, is about extracting lithium from waste and really playing into the circular economy. Uh, and one of the, the key highlights that we see with our recent Rincon acquisition is it's got a very low carbon footprint and, and that's a critical um, uh, investment enabler for us. So you asked about the areas that we're looking at. So we are centred on lithium at this point, but we absolutely uh, are interested in growing our, our nickel exposure. So we currently are a joint venture partner with Talon Minerals on the Tamarack um, uh, deposit in Minnesota. Um, so that's a really good starting point for us. And, and we really uh, have got a fantastic uh, JV partner in there with Talon. Uh, and then we're looking to, to absolutely grow that footprint in nickel. And the other piece that we're, we're really focused on in our strategy is to make sure that we keep abreast of, of technology um, advancements. Uh, and as you know, and we talk about, uh, you talk about a lot on this podcast, this industry changes so quickly. Um, and how do we make sure we, we maintain abreast of those technology advancements as they play out? Uh, so with that, we have actually, in, in the battery materials leadership team, have uh, a chief advisor who looks after research and development and technology to make sure we're connecting in with that. Uh, so also keeping um, a really good eye out for materials of the future and what might be required in order to support this transition. Let me ask you a question specifically about, it. before we started recording, I referenced that I had seen you on local TV in Bakersfield, California, at the 150th anniversary of U.S. Borax. And it's very interesting to me because of the, the history and the history with lithium, too, out there. Where do you see that going? And then one follow-on late-breaking news, since President Biden has invoked the uh, powers he has under the DPA. The interesting thing is that they specifically reference getting material from wastes and that whole aspect, which as far as I know, in the United States, you're really the only guys going after that at this point. Where do you see that going? And what's the time frame? As you said, it's a fantastic um, waste or lithium from waste project. Um, it was identified several years ago uh, when our engineers, our process engineers, were looking at what materials we were throwing away, um, that, the, that lithium in one of the streams was identified. Uh, since that time, the team have done an excellent job of firstly testing technology to extract it. Uh, and then we built a pilot plant. Uh, and this was done in a very agile fashion. Um, Parts of that plant was purchased off eBay uh, and it was put together very quickly. <laughs> and we've now been operating uh, that plant. And we're actually in 24 hours a day, four days a week operation on that plant now uh, and pushing out battery grade lithium carbonate, which is fantastic. Uh, and we're in the final stages of working through um, the business case for, for a commercial production. Um, and the commercial production is, is 5,000 tonne, 5, tonnes a year of battery-grade lithium carbonate. 
I know that sounds small. It would double U.S. production. <laughs> the, the irony is that's all Silver Peak's doing, or actually a little less than 5,000 tons. So I don't want to cast shade on 5,000 tons in any manner, shape, or form. It has to look yeah. a lot different now than it looked 24 months ago, given what's happened with supply and demand dynamic and pricing. The economics are, are looking much better on that. It is something that we're working through. Uh, and absolutely looking at, get, we get to a production of 5,000 tonnes a year, and then how do we scale it up? Because it's not just the material that's coming out of the waste stream that we would that we could process. There is 90 years of waste sitting in stockpiles um, at Boron that we could also then um, push through, through a plant as well. So there's absolutely opportunity to go beyond that. Um, but one of the things that we've definitely learned and one of the things that um, is fantastic about Rio Tinto's history, as I said earlier, um, is as we built in commodity space, we do it in smaller building blocks uh, to test uh, the technologies, to test also um, our commercial angle, and that's where, where grants teams work is so important, uh, to make sure that we make entries that are, that are small and we start to build our, our footprint um, over time. Um, and so there's a number of, of sort of shorter term, nearer term opportunities that we are investigating as a new battery materials leadership team, being mindful that we only sort of stood up late last year. So we, we've been busy. Uh, but what are those smaller building blocks that they've built to a, a bigger portfolio over time? Well, before we move on to RINCON, let me ask Grant, you already have a global footprint. So building out a commercial team is probably not a huge challenge for you guys. It's always interesting to me when I talk to a, a, a junior company that has never done anything but find one lithium asset, everything's new to them. You have a long, rich history in all sorts of materials and obviously know how markets work. Lithium can be a little bit of an odd duck. So how are you approaching it? Thanks for that, Joe. Uh, look, I mean, I think... It it's a very interesting time in the in the history of the lithium industry, right? Because we're on the cusp of this significant shift in terms of, of growth. And we're also seeing a significant shift on the end users. Um, so, you know, you look at uh, at the way that, that the OEMs have typically operated um, with ICE engines, you know, the, that, that business has grown over time. They've got established supplier relationships. Largely, they leave suppliers to worry about raw materials for their products and they they buy them and they put them together into amazing cars. You know, that that is not the same when you're looking at building out a huge EV industry, basically from scratch, and the potential for raw materials shortages and, and just the scale of investments required to get to where they want to get to means that they're looking up the value chain in a ways they never really did for internal combustion engines. And, and, and that's a very interesting opportunity, as you say, for a company like Rio Tinto, where you service multiple commodities, to have much deeper partnerships and conversations with OEMs than we've ever been able to have before. So, you know, whether it's our low carbon aluminium, whether it's our, our copper, which is also made in the US, um, or at least a lot of it, other, other stuff is obviously coming out of Mongolia, um, or whether it's lithium, um, we can have much richer conversations with them around how we can potentially work together uh, with different parts of the value chain uh, to create more value and, and you know, just basically give security of supply. And so, you know, I think that's a, a very interesting uh, opportunity, particularly for a company like Rio Tinto to think about in terms of the customer landscape and the market and the way it's developed. Well, as you look at, this has been an Asian business for a long time, but it's making the transition to a global business and in a post-COVID world, a call for regional supply chains. Starting to think about Rio Tinto, you have, you're not an American company, but you have a big American footprint. And given the whole Borax connection and what we all kind of laughed at is the tailings thing. Now it's, it's, it's a whole different deal. That seems to me, and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems to me like you're learning there. You're learning how the supply chain works. You lever that up. And by the time you maximize what you can do there, then then we'll get into Rincon. But it, it, it's kind of a nice filler and it gets you going here, here being you're as far away from me as you can be and still be on this planet in Perth. I think it's 11,455 miles or 18,000 X kilometers. You are literally on the other side of the world, but you probably have a bigger footprint in this industry than our 
than Albemarle has, who is actually based 25 minutes from where I'm sitting. So that's it. There's, there's a lot of interesting things at play here that honestly is a long time lithium guy. I'm just starting to connect the dots now, which is, is really interesting to me. And I'm actually quite excited about what you guys can bring to the table here. And I am really interested to see, and we'll, we'll close this part of it off and go on to Rincon, but I'm interested to see what could happen with the Defense Production Act, because I think you're the most likely candidate to actually get something done quickly. And, and we all know the way things are going right now, we, we need some wins here to, to move things forward. So with that, let's move on to your latest acquisition, which I believe closed last week of March. Is that right? 10 days ago, Joe. So, okay. Yeah, and so it, it all, all of this happened uh, very quickly. So as I said, we developed the battery materials strategy and it was endorsed by the board in quarter three. Uh, and then very quickly in quarter four, um, went through uh, the due diligence on, on the Rincon asset in Argentina. Um, I was part of the, the due diligence team that went into Salter and, and travelled to site, which was a fantastic opportunity and, uh, and, I was, and really impressed with the work that, that Sentient have, have done on this project. Incredible job. Um, and, uh, and then so we signed uh, the SPA for that uh, just before Christmas. Uh, and then the deal closed, as you said, 10 days ago. So it's very early days for us. I was, I was in back in country and, and visited Salta as the deal closed, um, went to welcome some 70-odd uh, new employees to Rio Tinto uh, with all of that, all that brings. Um, and being an Aussie, I, I bought a little uh, Aussie chocolate. It's called a Tim Tam. Yeah, um, I know what a Tim Tam is. You know a Tim Tam? So everybody <laughs> yeah, I do. a Tim Tam. And I, and I think if I visit site again without Tim Tams, I'll be in trouble because they were, they were demolished pretty quickly. So I think that'll be a regular um, luggage stash for me is, is Tim Tams for the troops on site. Um, but a fantastic asset. Uh, it was one definitely in the strategy work that we did. Um, having a Brian asset was really important for us. Uh, we have operated, we've got quite a strong history of operations in Argentina in the past, and that, that reputation is still strong, both at a federal level, um, but also just in, in, the, in the province itself. There's a, there's a Borax business, um, Borax Argentina, that used to be Rio Tinto in that province. So strong history there. A fantastic work that the team had done on the DLE technology. So we, we had brought all of our sort of technical resources to bear through that process uh, and really confident about the direct lithium extraction there. And the thing we really like about it, it's, it's lower temperature, so therefore it doesn't require gas. And for that is, is a much smaller um, uh, carbon footprint, which was was absolutely part of the appeal. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, we're very happy with the asset. Um, it was great to welcome um, the team in 10 days ago. Um, and we're sort of working on, on the development plans and the development pathways for the asset. Well, I, ha- I have been to Rincon a few times and uh, it's, it's an interesting part of the world. You brought up another point though, that I really like is it's some companies take a look at, I, I've talked to some companies, actually a couple bigger than you are about Argentina, and it was a it was a no-fly zone for them. They just didn't want the risk. And you've operated there before. So you realize that Argentina gets a lot of bad press, but when you're when you're there, Argentines always seem to be able to get stuff done. That's <laughs> you know, obviously is an oversimplification, but uh it's great that uh you're able to see that the glass is more than half full rather than looking at it as being, you know, all the problems. It's been really important discussion um, as a sort of as a business and with our board that in order to grow in into this space, we are going to have to really un- move into different locations that we're operating right now. And the board was very much aware of that. So when we, we took uh, the Rincon acquisition to the board, they acknowledged that. We're going back into a country that we've operated in before um, and where, you know, it is a fantastic location um, for, you know, there's a lot of uh, lithium and 20% of the world's lithium resources in this area. And know that's very important for, for us building our strategy. So great well, addition. Well, we've already invoked the name of Chris Reed. So let me invoke it again. He talks about peak spodumene and when peak spodumene is, is going to happen. It will happen. And that's why when he was recently on the podcast, he says, you know, the Brian guys really have to to pick up the slack. I've been around the industry long enough. When I started, 
I had 100% of the lithium-ion battery business with North Carolina spodumene produced lithium hydroxide and lithium carbonate, and then that ended quickly in the late 90s with, with brine coming on, and then it was all brine for a few years, and then a hard rock stormed back. Honestly, Argentina has to be developed in a major way or you're not going to have even 20% EV penetration anytime soon because there, there just won't be enough lithium. So I'm, I think we're of the same mind on that. But what's your timetable for Rincon? Or, you know, I mean, obviously it's early days, but I know how big companies work and there's a whole big load of paper that says what you're going to do. You can't tell me what it is, but you can give me a kind of an idea. Oh, Joe. So, yeah, development timeline. So we are 10 days in, so sort of caveating um, this next comment with that. Um, we are. We know that speed to market is critical here. We know how important um, sort of unlocking these, these deposits is, is for the market. So we, we are working hard on that. We are looking to, to go to a small-scale production um, within the next few years, uh, and that's to really to test the technology of the DLE, but also to sort of start to test our commercial muscle, as we talked about earlier. So it's another one of our opportunities. And then to build uh, to scale over time in parallel. Um, and we are challenging some of the uh, traditional ways of project development within Rio Tinto with this project, really looking at an agile risk-based approach to our studies uh, so that we can get ourselves um, at scale into the market as quickly as possible. So that's the intent. Uh, we've got to work through the details of how we deliver that. Um, and there's two things that really struck me with my, my recent trip uh, to Salta. The first is um, from a health and safety perspective, one of the key priorities for us is, is trying to get safer access in and out of the site. Uh, you've driven that road, Joe, so you'll see. You'll it's not a road. It, well, <laughs> if you go up to Ombre Muerto, there's road and then there's no road. And then you see the, the skulls of cattle that are like running slalom gates in a ski race. So, yeah. Yeah, I, it's, it's a big it. priority for us to, to, to sort that out. We don't want our employees and contractors sort of traveling on that road for, for, for a long period of time. Um, so it was one of the things that um, when I was flying out of, um, of Salto, I was sitting on the plane with Paul Graves and he and I were discussing how they went about putting their airstrip in um, and making sure there was a safer um, uh, passage and transportation route for people. So that's one. The second, and, and you've already touched on it, it's a really busy region of the world right now, just trying to get access to drilling rigs and labour and people to support development um, is really tricky. So it's one thing. Uh, that I think the lithium producers in the region have to work together on. Um, getting this, this product to market is critical. So how do we sort of grow uh, the footprint of, of local and regional suppliers and also local talent and building uh, the right capabilities that we require? Because there's a very small pool and at the moment it just moves around. We actually need to grow the pool in order to be able to be successful. Fortunately, Salta has a good university. There are a lot of very well-trained people there. I can give you some names if you need them, but you're right. It, it's going to be, there's going to be a lithium talent war in the Puna. There's no doubt about it. You have too much that's got to happen in the next five to seven years. And in some cases, I had added a question uh, since I sent you a, a list of topics about the talent situation. But then again, I mean, that's where your size and experience, you've probably been in parts of the world where you had to grow talent before in other industries. So I, I, I doubt if it's uh, something you haven't thought of, which is what differentiates you from some of the juniors who rush in and then don't really think about it till it's a problem. Yeah. And it's one of the visits that I did whilst I was up on site uh, only last week. Uh, we went out in the communities and um, the Rincon team had done an incredible job with the, the technical college in um, San Antonio. So yep. currently there's 320 students at this college uh, learning chemistry and maths and all of the, the subjects that are going to be really important for this industry. The, the fantastic thing also about those 320 is the over 50% are female. So they've done a fantastic job with, with our students. I think the age is sort of 16 to 18. And Rincon has been supporting internships for graduates of this program to come to site and really understand how to apply uh, these skills. So we're really keen to continue on that, grand, that great foundation. And as you said, there's great universities in Salta. So how do we 
um, give some of the, the youth of the Puna the opportunity to go and learn and grow so that, they, that then they can support our future operations as well. Well, I speak at the Lithium Conference down there, which alternates between Catamarca, Huhui, and Salta. And the last two years, I've had to be virtual. I'm planning on being in Catamarca at the end of May. And that's what strikes you at that event is, and you wouldn't think there'd be a place in Salta that you could speak to 600 people at one time, but, but there is. And half of them are students. That's the difference between the conference there and the conference that you would go to in Las Vegas or wherever a normal battery conference that you have a lot of students and there's huge interest. And I get kids writing to me on my website asking, how do I get a lithium job? And I said, don't ask me. I, I learned Japanese instead of Spanish. So I'm, I'm a, a bit useless and, uh, trying to uh, affect connections. But, you know, this is the whole thing is very fascinating to me because I think you're going to be a great addition as a as a corporation to what's going on down there. Now, did you meet the mining minister, I assume, and the governor and and all that? Yeah, it's and, and they're they're very accessible too. That that's the other cool thing about it. There's a lot of support in Salta. I unfortunately didn't get to meet the governor. He was he was not available, but I've definitely met with uh, the mining secretaries uh, and the mining ministers. So yeah, very uh, very supportive, uh, both at a Salta level, but also at a federal level. So, so looking forward to continuing those conversations as well. Well, when you said small scale, I have to ask you, define small. I just asking from the standpoint of there's, we're going to build a 20,000 ton plant first and then double it or then triple it, or there's, we're going to build a 5,000 ton plant first. Do you, do you have a, you have a number there you can share? Well, it's probably on the lower end of that scale, Joe, uh, at, to start with. So how do we really just uh, test out the column technology? So, so definitely on the smaller end of that. But we're not going to wait for that to start the, the program for, for the full scale, though. So that will happen in parallel. Yeah, we're, we're, we're pushing very hard to be producing at, at a large scale before the end of the decade. This episode of the Global Lithium Podcast is sponsored by Zolandes, a brinefield services company providing real-time, actionable data. Zolandes recently saved a major lithium brine producer up to 50% in their drilling costs and increase brine well production rates by as much as 40%. Find out more at zolandes.com. All right, before I, I go on to probably the sadder story of your lithium lives, let me ask Grant about the real view of the market. If you look at demand numbers, I like to say that all the positive surprises have been on the demand side and all the negative surprises have been on the supply side. And where do you see that supply and demand balance in 2025 and in 2030? Do you see a tight, uh, continued tight market? What's the Rio thought? Thanks for that. Uh, I think it's clearly the topic of the industry right now. Everyone's uh, talking about it. We see prices uh, multiply three, four, five, six times or more uh, in a relatively short space of time, which is typical of, 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 of uh, a very tight market, right? And um, it's funny, this is the same conversation we have in every commodity. So when I used to be investor relations for iron ore, everyone would ask me, hey, what's your view on iron ore prices? And, uh, and, you know, I used to say, well, if I knew where iron ore prices would go, I'd probably be buying paper or doing physical trades and I'd be on the beach by now retired. Um, so we don't have a crystal ball. Um, but I think, you know, differing views always are good for, for kind of challenging each other and thinking about, uh, thinking about direction. At the end of the day, everyone's going to be wrong. It's just a question of how far wrong they are. Uh, I've said that myself on the podcast about my prediction. So we agree yeah, on that. Absolutely. Um, but to me, I think what's key is, is trends. Overall trends can be observed, right? And as we sit here today, we can see, as we talked about earlier, the huge transition that's going on between uh, or from ICEs to, to, to EVs and hybrids and, and everything that has electrification in it. Um, and, and what you can see is huge build-outs are required in the battery capacity, which requires you know, all of that upstream or downstream, depending on how you look at it, to be developed to supply the lithium that's needed. And, and, you know, I think what everyone will agree is we're looking at significant growth in lithium, right? So whether it's three times, four times, five times, six times, people will debate, but it's significant growth, right? And uh, 
that's the huge challenge for the industry to deliver on. And Rio Tinto, we, we're, we're relatively new to the lithium space, but we've developed, uh, found and developed assets for, for almost 150 years now. And uh, that's just got harder and harder and harder. And so, you know, we're very aware of some of the challenges that are connected to finding and developing projects. And, and look, the question here is, uh, I guess, where you're going is, how does that actually play out, right? If there's not enough battery materials to, to meet demand that we see uh, today, where, where the OEMs are setting out their, their targets and, and the battery manufacturers are trying to keep up, you know, what, what does that actually mean for the lithium industry? It probably means a lot of volatility along the way. Um, so, you know, we're going to have to find market equilibrium, and that's probably going to be a mixture of higher prices and lower prices. And, you know, you'll never know exactly where it's going, but... Uh, but what that what that will do is is make some tough choices or, or force the industry to make some tough choices, right? And so, you know, whether that means that the that the current plans move more towards LFP because there's just not enough nickel available, you know, whether that means um, potentially LFP because there's lower lithium content, or whether that means a proliferation of hybrids so they can put small batteries in but still meet some of the the, the, the kind of demand that they're trying to do to, to move towards more electrification or, or whether that just slows down growth in EVs right it's it's I don't know what the answer is going to be it could be a mix of all of them um, but what what we're doing is really trying to focus on look there's a range of outcomes that could occur in the market and how do we set ourselves up building optionality and flexibility into the way we think about this business to be able to tackle all of those outcomes. Well, the other piece of that is you have a lot more at stake because you have other businesses that uh, benefit from the energy transition. I think you hit all the points. I, I guess I would respectfully say two things. One, lithium's not a commodity, not yet. You guys may be part of making it a commodity, but it's still especially chemical because it's not a fungible good. That's, that's interchangeable. I'm sorry for that editorial statement, but I think as you get more into it and you learn about the qualification, I don't think it takes two years to qualify iron ore anywhere. You really hit all, all the points and it's, we're going to have a transition to electric vehicles. That is going to happen. The question is, is it done by 2090 or is it done by 2045? Or it's going to take time, but it, it, it can only happen. You know, let's just say in the next 20 years, there's going to be changes in battery technology, but they're all going to involve lithium in the next 20 years. Very interesting to me as you look at markets, you probably have more insight than a lot of other people. And you probably have different angled conversations. But my point to you is that because you are skilled at mining and because you have an asset, in a brine asset that will be in the low quartile on the cost curve, as you see more and more rock have to be developed. And we just heard the other day from one of the Chinese battery producers who said lapidolite is going to be what bails China out from a shortage. And I was like, that's pretty good news for you guys if you look at where lapidolite is going to sit on the cost curve. So I'm going to move on to your probably one of your sad moments. I assume you spent a lot of time on the legal work on Yadar. And where does that stand? Is it over? Is it maybe not over? What can you say about it? What can we say? Yes. Yeah, so, so Joe, we, we absolutely still believe that this is a world-class deposit. I don't know how many people know this, but there was actually a Rio Tinto discovery in 2004 when we were in Serbia looking for, for borates mineralization. On the first drill hole, we found the borates, and on the second one, we found what we now know as Yadarat. So it is, it's absolutely world-class. It's 143.5 million tonnes of resource at about one and a half percent. So yeah, it's a high grade resource in an excellent location uh, and a real opportunity uh, to really, to, to feed into the European EV value chain. So we absolutely still believe in it. Um, but we do also understand the importance of, of that Yadar region to Serbia. And we know, and we've heard very clearly that people are worried about the impacts, uh, both to the environment, but also to their livelihoods. Um, and given that it's a predominantly agricultural area. So we also agree that clean air, clean water, uh, minimising waste and, and protecting those livelihoods are really important. Our own employees all live in that community uh, and these are basic human rights and we absolutely uh, agree with them. We've made commitments to the community and to suppliers. We're also a very 
large landowner in the area now. So we're continuing to meet our obligations to them, regardless of what's happened with our permits and licences. So we're really focused right now on being a good neighbour and to sort of meaningfully engage and stand ready to engage with all the, the key stakeholders. So at community level, with the municipality and also at federal level. So in terms of timing, what's going to happen, I can't answer that right now, Joe. Um, but we've got a very good team on the ground there. We're focused on being a good neighbour and we stand ready to engage. Well, let me ask for either one of you, when you look at market participation going forward, you had a strategy that had a strong Europe component. But when you look at Argentina, we've talked a lot about, I've talked a lot about it with different groups in Argentina, is Argentina being kind of the bridge to the EU battery supply, simply because, especially without your project, you're really looking at, even if the two small ones they're talking about now happen, that's going to be about 10% of the supply they need in the, in, later in this decade. So when you're looking at how you're going to do your allocation of resources, is that, you talked about partnerships, is that partner dependent or do you have a focus on one region versus another? Yeah, look, I think it's a really, really interesting question, Joe, because I think we've seen mega trends accelerate around this regionalization of supply chain. And I think it's particularly uh topical in, in the battery space, because largely, as we've talked about a couple of times already, this is brand new uh, value chain that needs to be built right from scratch. And yes, it exists today, largely in China, but North America, Europe, they've got their own ambitions to meet and they want to make sure they've got a supply chain that can help them get there. Are they going to be able to build a whole supply chain within within country? Possibly. Uh, but, but certainly uh, to your point, when you start looking at where the, the, the resources sit, you can't move them. You can't just, you know, pick up a resource and put it in a different country and you've got to work where you find them. Um, so undoubtedly, I think to, to, to a large extent, you know, both regions will still require imports. The question is to what degree. So when we sit back as Rio Tinto, obviously we're a global company. We sell around the world. We sell commodities around the world. And we really think about where do we place the commodity to get maximum value for it, for our customers and also for ourselves. And I think that is a big theme in lithium, which is going to play out, which is, you know, maybe similar to some other commodities where you start to see this commodity is a European based commodity or, or a, an American based co uh, commodity where that is of more value to someone who's got a complete value chain in the US such that, you know, made in the US is a stamp that you can put on it or made in Europe or, or whatever. And, and so that does play into how we think about allocating tons in our book. And um, that is something that will potentially change depending on the number of assets that we get developed and what that overall portfolio looks like. Um, so, you know, are we going to sell Rincon material into Europe? Possibly, uh, you know, but, you know, that will really depend as we go forward and look at the overall book and see how we can balance it and make sure we put the product where it's valued the most. All right. You're a global mining giant. And there are many assets other than what you have in Boron, California, in North America. My question of where's your battery materials business in five years? Can you see yourself acquiring resources in North America in that time frame? Is that would that be on the table, or are you going with the with the homegrown? Uh, philosophy? Joe, um, the answer to that is we absolutely plan to grow our business. How we choose and will grow the business is really up to a fundamental to Rio Tinto, which is, uh, is capital allocation discipline. So to be really disciplined about that, we've got, we're doing our work now to really unpack how we add value to future assets and how do we apply new technologies to unlock value. So that's our focus. Um, but every asset we will, we will absolutely run rulers over. But how we choose to do that will absolutely be based on the ensuring that we do um, we do return give returns to our shareholders because that's what we that's why we exist uh, and making sure we're very disciplined in the allocation of our capital because it's not just the battery materials uh, portfolio that's growing there's other parts of our business that are required as you said earlier for the energy transition so it's making sure we we, we allocate our, our capital into the very best um, opportunities. 
the one nice thing about lithium is that the capital bets are are small compared to some of the other capital bets that you have to make and you have a great opportunity to make a much more significant impact on the lithium industry than possibly you could say in copper or something else so that's my editorial plea for <laughs> further developing uh, lithium assets. There's a lot of lithium around North America, as you well know. And uh, obviously, uh, a company with a global footprint, uh, five years from now, I'd, I'd like to see your, your feet in at least three continents. But okay, so we're at the winding this down. What question should I have asked you that I didn't ask you? I think you've covered it all, Joe. I, I, I suppose the only thing that I would add that we, we haven't covered is uh, that particularly with the team that is leading this portfolio within Rio Tinto, one of the things that is really common is a commitment to the purpose. And you heard Grant talk about that earlier. We all absolutely believe um, in, in electric vehicles and their, and their contribution to the energy transition. I'm a new owner of an EV and I can tell you right now after driving one, I will never drive an ICE again. Um, so they're a fantastic vehicle as well as being really important for the environment. So that connection of purpose is really important to what we do. Uh, and that is how we plan to attract talent about making sure that we, we have people working in our organisation, in this portfolio that absolutely believe in what we're doing and the importance of it um, for, for the world and for, for combating climate change. Which brings me to the second one, and we touched on it earlier, is about talent. Uh, this is, you know, we've talked a lot about the growing demand and the need to sort of get supply on board to meet that demand. But you, got, you can only do that through people. So we're really focused on, on developing our own technical skills internally, but I think there's absolutely work that we need to do in all of the regions that we operate to, to build that same capability, whether it be in SALTA, uh, whether it be in North America, but working really closely with uh, technology institutes and universities to continue to build the pipeline of people that are required to support this industry in the future. Well, I think you will have a, a significant impact on that. And uh, I really appreciate your guys' time. But since you have both said you listen to the podcast, you, you know what happens at the end. These are really easy ones. <laughs> okay, I'll start with Marnie. Favorite city in the world? Oh my gosh, I've got so many. Do I have to pick one? Um, you can rank your top five. That's the best I can five, do. <laughs> uh, top five, uh, Belgrade, Perth, New York, London. That'll do. Okay, Grant, same question. Okay, good. Uh, you gave me a bit of extra time to think there. Um, right. Thanks, Marnie. You see um, how this works. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, I mean, I, I'm always a big fan of, of DC. I think it's a, it's a lovely city where you've got amazing resources on your doorstep, and it's, it appeals to me as a Scotsman. It's, it's all largely free. Okay. Favorite movie? Grant first. Oh, uh, probably something like The Godfather. Which one? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I'm going to go with the original Godfather okay. 1. Good call. 50-year anniversary. Marnie, what's your favorite uh, movie? Uh, I'm very sentimental. Mine is definitely a Christmas movie, so, so love, actually. I watch it every year with my family. Love that movie. Okay, okay. All right, back to Marnie. If you could be a world-class performer, and I'm not saying you aren't in the field you're currently in, but if you were going to pick another field of endeavor and you could be world-class, what would you pick? It would definitely be a sporting one, Joe. I, I, I love to exercise and sport, and I was an ambitious or had lots of ambition to be a world-class rower when I was younger, but I was too short, so rowing. Okay. Grant? Uh, basketball, no doubt. I grew up watching Michael Jordan in the 90s, loved it, uh, really wanted to be a basketball player, but uh, like Marnie, I'm a little bit vertically challenged at 5'9". Yeah, well, that that happens. I'm you're you're an inch taller than I am. I think we're gonna do one more. If you could invite anyone who's ever lived to dinner and have a long conversation, who would it be, Grant? Yeah, start with me. Good, share the love. Um, <laughs> I think uh, I think possibly Bill Gates. I mean, he's still alive, so uh, that's uh, maybe not in the rules, but... Um, no, yeah, it's I've in watched... the rules. It's anybody who's ever lived, and he okay. has lived, so we're good. 
Bill Gates. So the, doc- the documentary Bill's Brain on Netflix and just his capacity to absorb information, process it, and, and make really interesting insights. I just find fascinating. Uh, quite an amazing guy. Okay. Marnie. I was going to say Bill as well, but I won't. Do you know, I would love to sit down and have a chat to Elon over, over dinner um, and understand him and how he's very visionary. I'd really like to unpack that and understand how his brain works. So Elon Musk. Okay. Marty and Grant, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. And hopefully we'll have another conversation in the future. Thanks, Thanks Joe. Joe. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation with Marty and Grant. Having Rio Tinto in the industry is only going to help us get where we need to go. They bring scale and capital capacity that has been missing from the industry. And with the growth challenges we have to try to catch up with demand from a supply perspective between now and the end of the decade, it's great to have a Rio Tinto in the fold. The episode was recorded on Wednesday night, U.S. time, Thursday morning in Perth. I am recording this on Friday, and today Elon Musk tweeted about the lithium price and the fact that Tesla might have to get into mining. While I believe that Elon Musk is a gifted visionary, one of the obvious mistakes he has made over the years is the way he has handled his lithium supply Tesla has the most risk out there because they are the EV leader. As their contracts reset, they're finding out just exactly where they stand. And the price picture over the rest of the decade, even for a Tesla, looks pretty ugly. My experience dealing with Tesla supply chain goes back to the early days of Tesla. I was working for what is now Livent then. I was living in Asia. I was called in by a trading company that provided Sumitomo Metal Mining with the lithium hydroxide they needed for NCA. In those days, Tesla was blissfully ignorant about where lithium came from. Panasonic was making the cells. Sumitomo Metal Mining was making the cathode. And I was supplying lithium hydroxide. The estimates for Tesla's demand back in those days were always fanciful. I used to joke with Sumitomo Metal Mining that my algorithm for deciding real demand was to take whatever they estimated and cut the number in half and then multiply by 0.8. In those days, Livent was the only company that could make qualified hydroxide at scale for Sumitomo Metal Mining. I had a 60% premium on price to the market and did my first take-or-pay contract for supply of Tesla material. A few years later, I was out of FMC and advising a number of companies. I happened to meet with Tesla. This was approximately eight years ago. There was a lot of talk about the cost they needed to grow the company, and the cost was actually lower than any lithium producer's hydroxide cash cost was at the time. My message to Tesla then was in order to take the market element out of their hydroxide buying and to get the kind of cost that they were looking for, the only way to do it was to own lithium assets themselves. Of course, in the middle of the last decade, I could never have envisioned the pricing going to where it is today. But my message to Tesla then and now was the right one. Since the middle of the last decade, Tesla signed many contracts with companies which in some cases never produced a kilogram of lithium commercially. Tesla's scale of production and demand are now well beyond the ability of Elon's star power to secure supply. The irony is that his statements on Twitter about getting into mining probably are only going to raise his cost of acquiring a lithium asset or two. I really look forward to watching the last installment in the drama that is Tesla's battery material acquisitions play out. Elon could buy the entire lithium industry a few times over. Less than two years ago, 
we had the lithiums everywhere and we can produce it with what amounts to table salt and clay. When I criticized those statements right after battery day, the Tesla true believers came after me en masse saying, Elon's a genius. You're an idiot if you bet against him. And Elon is a genius. And in most cases, I would say it's not a good idea to bet against him. But now look at the risk profile Tesla has with respect to lithium as they opened up the Austin plant this week after just opening up the Berlin plant a few weeks ago. They have the most to lose by not having enough lithium. Elon Musk has been massively successful across multiple disciplines. Yet lithium is going to become his Achilles heel if he doesn't get out his checkbook soon. With respect to lithium, Mr. Musk, Nanakarobi, ya oki. Fall down seven times, get up eight. Thanks for listening.